0: Hello and welcome, I'm your host Petri and this show helps you to build your company. In this episode, we talk about one of the most difficult things in business. How to sell, build a leading sales organization and how to manage your team. Professor Paul Vio is not just a leading academic in the field, but also a practitioner who has built many startup sales teams over the years. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Hey Paul, how are you doing?
1: Hi Petri, I'm very well, thanks. What about yourself?
0: Well, it's been quite interesting times and sales is rather hard in the 2020s. I don't know why, maybe you know why. And another question related, which is quite important I think, why most of the people are doing sales wrong?
1: Well, that's a very good question. That's a very good observation. Also, the first one that you mentioned, um, that sales has absolutely it has changed a lot in the 2020s, thanks to the situation that we are at now. Um, when it comes to why sales is difficult, there are many different uh, points or maybe takes on that. Uh, that. That's actually a reason why I, st- why I started studying and uh, taking my... Uh, doing my PhD in sales, selling sales management, because I think that most people are actually doing sales in the wrong way. They don't really grasp how it should be done and what it actually entails to, to do sales or to sell and also to manage sales and to lead sales. So these are very, well, very common things that I observe and also get feedback from my clients and customers that they don't really know what they're doing.
0: But it's just so simple, you know, there are needs and, and, you know, there's someone who actually can fulfill that need. What's the problem? Well, exactly. That's, those are kind of the points. Sometimes there was,
1: a. am um, not going to mention the name, but it was um, a former professional racing driver. And he told me, Paul, what's so difficult about selling? You just go out and sell and that's it. And I say, well, I wish it was that easy because most of the people out there, they don't find it that easy. And there's a difference between selling and also managing sales and leading sales. And I think when it comes to those, oftentimes, I think um, when you're if you're successful in sales, which most people aren't. So if you're successful in sales, then usually you get promoted or very oftentimes you get promoted and then... You look at things from your angle and your perspective, you think that everybody else is gonna do things as well as you do. And when they don't, you get frustrated because you don't understand what they're doing wrong. So I think these are kind of things that um, very few people actually are able to do sales and, and to be successful at that. and And even less people are successful at managing and leading sales. And those few who are, they kind of think that okay, this is how you should do it, and they they stick to old old school models and old ways of doing sales, which have maybe worked if you're in a, in a different industry or if you were in the fifties or sixties when the diff- situation was totally different compared to 2020. And and well, maybe that's a longer story, but but just to highlight, things have changed a lot. It's not just the 2020s; it, it has changed since the second world war things changed dramatically sales has changed how people act how they buy has changed a lot and that of course also entails changes in how you sell i mean if a customer acts differently uh, tomorrow than they do today and and compared to yesterday you have to adapt to that and you have to adapt not only how you do things but how you how you understand your customers what you should be looking at and how you should uh, communicate to, to and with customers on what kind of dialogue you should be having with them. So I think these are these are things which are really genuinely interesting to observe, to study, to research, and also to train customers, and also to um, operationalize and uh, put that those theories and models into action. So that's that's kind of what I how I look at things and what I do. But,
0: but there's also this very simple fact which you uh, mentioned to me a while ago, which is that 75% of companies and people, they don't have a sales process at all. So, you know, you're not even doing the basic uh, steps to do proper sales. Why is that?
1: Yeah, that's. Uh, I was actually referring to in that discussion. I was referring to a study which was made in the US uh, some years ago. And what they did, they studied about 1300 companies and the findings in that study pointed out that 75% of companies are not as successful as they could be because the study showed that half of the companies actually have a selling process in place only half of them so and and out of those 50% who had a selling process in place only half of those which equals 25% of the total number they actually follow up on the sales process also, so they actually monitor. They have a sales process and they monitor and they follow up on that. And that kind of maybe sounds interesting as, as such already. But when you think of the of the the uh, takeaway from that is that ninety percent of the companies that fall into that twenty five percent bracket who have a sales process in place and who also monitor that and follow up on that, they have much better profits than or higher profits than those who do not do that if you have a selling process in place you're going to be better off than than most of your competitors so that being said that's a good thing if you have one but then following up and monitoring that you actually work according to that process that will increase your market dominance even further or your position on the market at least so I think these this is what I was referring to that there are many reasons why they don't do that but I would maybe generally say that they don't bother doing their homework and having and creating a sales process and also then following up on that
0: how they can actually perform at all? Because usually you have some kind of sales targets and you have to, you know, project your sales and then you have to reach those targets a bit later on. And if you don't have any kind of a process, how how they can just, you know, cope with the life? Yeah, that's
1: a good question. I, I, I'm always mind blown. When I see a company which doesn't have any process in place, maybe it's not as, as dark as, as it sounds, because there's also another study which points out that, okay, what kind of a customer relationship are you going to have or or what type of customer relationship do you have and that compared to what kind of a selling process or sales process you have in place so that study um, was was, they were studying about a couple of thousand companies both in in the u.s and or north america and european union so mostly northern and western european countries and they came to the conclusion that if, if you're gonna be a listed vendor which is the the basic, basic, basic relationship that you will have with the customer ranging all the way to a solutions consultant and trusted partner, okay? That would be like going from low to high. And then you, have, then you compare that with what kind of a selling process you have in place. You have maybe no sales process in place. Maybe you have a um, kind of a semi fixed sales process in place and then you have a fixed sales process in place or structured one and then you have a dynamic one okay long story short it shows that those who do not have a sales process in place they don't really become the trusted partner of course in a few cases that will happen but from a statistically significant point of view not enough companies are going to be in that bracket so it means that you can you can sell to customers, and you can be successful at that uh, to some extent, but you will only reach a certain level as a sales organization. So look at it this way. Um, then on the opposite side, com- companies and, and sales organizations which have a dynamic sales process in place, they usually end up on a higher scale of their customer relationship. So they don't really they don't really stay at the bottom level of just being a listed vendor, they kind of jump that turtle very quickly and they get more in deeper relationship with their customers. So they usually are in in the box, trusted partner and solutions consultant. That's where you usually find them because they are much further as an organization as opposed to those organizations who don't have a sales process in place. What it actually means is, it's quite funny. Those companies who don't have a sales process in place Okay, that's, that's one category. Then there's the next category who have kind of a sales process in place. What that usually means is that they have a fixed sales process in place, but they don't follow it. And when I ask these sales organizations, the people working in these organizations, so do you follow your sales process? Or do, first one, do you have a sales process? Yes, we have. Well, do you follow it? No, we don't. Well, what do you put into your CRM or SFA? So that stands for Customer Relationship Management System or Sales Automation System. Uh, what, do you, what do you write in those systems? Because you have some an electronic system for that, so what do you do? And they say, we keep two parallel systems, one which we, how we work in real life, and one which we use for our bosses so that they are satisfied with the results that they see in the CRM system or the SFA system. Wow. So yeah, That's kind of mind-blowing <laughs> But people go as far that they, kind of, they start cheating their own bosses and the numbers are real, but the data that they put in there might be actually something that they, they package in a way that makes the boss feel good. And, and that's kind of very scary because imagine the amount of resources you will be throwing out the window if you have people working in two parallel ways one which is for your company and one which is the one which really generates value for the customer and for your organization so i think that's really scary that's a route that i should uh, that i always disencourage customers from going at
0: Uh, this begs for another question why is that are the systems so cumbersome that nobody wants to use them and and so that's the reason to, to go all the trouble of having two systems oh absolutely w- what's the takeaway from that absolutely yeah i think that's the,
1: the there are a few reasons but let's, let's start with the basics maybe the first it, it used to be a couple of uh, decades ago 10 20 years ago people do, salespeople didn't want to give out their information so they didn't want to share their secrets and their their real information about their customers because it was kind of a one-man show in most cases the customers were owned by the salesperson if you will and the salesperson felt. And had the thought that if he or she then puts those information or that information into a system, then he or she becomes redundant. He or she can be replaced by somebody else because all the data is already there. But uh, there was kind of a almost a fear of putting in your data into the CRM systems. And I get, I get that. I, I completely get that. But that was kind of in the old days because nowadays people have become a little bit more refined in that. They understand or realize it. It's not the data that actually does it. It's not what you have written there that, sure, you can be replaced. But the question of the successful person replacing you, is he or she able to maintain at least the same kind of relationship as you did with the customer or even create a better one? So it's about the relationship really. It's between the people. As long as people do business with people, it's going to be very important how you actually deal with people, how they feel about you. So that's kind of one angle on the side. And then another point is that you said, are the systems so cumbersome and difficult to use? Absolutely, yes, they are. Most of the systems I've been trying out, so many CRM systems and sales support systems and SFAs, you name it. And the same problem, I would say that they are built in one way and they are, first of all, they're usually pretty ugly. So they don't look very nice to look at. Uh, unless you like the look and feel of an Excel sheet or or any of these. Well, it's the same in my opinion. If you look at Facebook, for example, their graphical user interface or Google's graphical user interface, I think they are just mind blowing how little emphasis they put on that. The same goes with Amazon, for example. So these are just kind of ways of doing things which work for them. Yeah, it's very productive or, or producer oriented in that way, I would say. But if you look at what a salesperson really needs to have in a CRM system, it can be very different from case to case, that's one thing. And it can be very different from what the producers or vendors of the software systems or or solutions actually think that the salesperson should have. Because the situations are completely different. I mean, let's take a basic example. If you work in a business to, to consumer, a B2C industry, or if you work in B2B, that's business-to-business business, or B2G, business-to-government, so the public sector, it's gonna look very different what kind of knowledge and if, or, sorry, data and information you need, to, you need to have for you as to become successful at selling and, and managing that sales, that customer relationship and building on that and then managing that account and so forth and so forth. So, and then it comes also to the point that, sorry for, the, for dragging out on this uh, answer, but I think these are important points that if you look at a, any product, any product at all, it would, I don't care if it's a hard product, a tangible or intangible product, the software or computer whatever it is, if it's made so that the user will find it difficult to use, he or she will not use it, at least not optimally, or he or she will even try to find another solution. So that's also an important point when you, when you think about what kind of systems you should have in place most companies are still in the old era that they produce systems solutions software uh, components whatever it is from their perspective i mean most companies still do this as opposed to looking at how and, and in what shape and form and experience the customer would actually like to have it so i think these are kind of reasons which which drive us into people or sales people going maybe sometimes even berserk about their their sales Uh, processes and why they don't feel like using them or they divert and they use some other alternative way instead which works better for them and there's also another dimension to that if if you allow me to add on that people are very different I mean some people want to work in a very organized fashion and way and they want to have all the data set in one specific way or system whereas other people are more kind of more the artist type of people who are able to Comprehend things in a different, more abstractive way, maybe, and and they need maybe a different system. So within the same sales organization, you might have very different people, different type of people who work in different ways. So trying to kind of enforce one system or a system on them
0: is gonna is gonna prove difficult. But that's a fact
1: we have seen, and that we we continue to see in organizations.
0: Now we are come to the point where we actually say that most of the people don't know how to do sales. There's only a few really good salespeople. All the systems suck. <laughs> so <laughs> should we start to sort of um, build another world where we say that okay, um, I have a new company, I have a startup, and maybe I already have a product, and now I start to, I need to start to do sales. I need to find customers. We are in that point. Um, so if I can start from scratch, sure. how should I do that? And if I'm the CEO, I, I I need some salespeople. I need someone else. So what's the optimal way of doing that?
1: Yeah, that's the uh, you're looking for a silver bullet, of course. Here, as as everybody is, there's not one right way of doing things, of course. Uh, but how I would start it is that, and and how I encourage people and companies to do that. Now I actually train them is to look at your customers first. I mean, if you're, let's imagine you have no customers in the first place. Do you have an idea, okay? So as opposed to making that idea complete at first and then going out to the market, I would say that, okay, keep it at the idea level first. Go out to the market, talk to potential customers or, or partners, whatever it, it, alliance partners that you might find, and try to get a sense of what they need what, what's in your domain? What's in your capability and of competence that you're actually thinking that of doing? And then look at what the market is actually needing. What do they need? And I'm not only talking about uh, the needs that they are aware about, but also unaware needs that they don't know about really yet, or they might even have some thoughts, or they might even have a dream, okay? And a wish how things could be. And, and look at that angle instead. Don't go and compete head to head with other competitors who have something similar but try to look at different avenues and once you grasp that okay this is what the customers w- might want to happen and, and they they kind of feel is important for them what would drive them further what would drive their business or if, if they're not doing business what would drive their life or situation what would improve it and that's something that you can help create value in so that's actually you're helping your customer reach that point or that target what they're aiming at and then I would go back and look at okay, so how do they go about it? How do they buy things like this or in this category that I'm trying to promote or sell or or propose to them? And then I get an understanding, okay, so this is how they go about purchasing that kind of solutions or 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 and choosing them, and what kind of purchasing processes do they have in place? And what type of categorization of purchases do they use and then I would from there derive how my sales organization should be working and how my sales supporting functions should be supporting the the sales uh, people out there or sales teams so I think that's how I would actually plan it and build and then go about okay now I understand what the market could need these could be the customers this could be the prioritization of that and this is how they work when when they purchase those kind of work kind of screen uh, select or shortlist and and then select categorize actually purchase these kind of solutions and then I would build from that so I would go actually go backwards from that that point on and then see okay what does it mean for my sales organization what type of people do I need what type of competencies do I need what type of capabilities what type of support support people what type of processes should be in place to make that Uh, work in a coherent way and by coherent way I mean that it shouldn't be it shouldn't differ very much for the customer if they contact me or if they contact my salesperson if I'm the sales executive for example if if they contact me or if they contact my salesperson or my sales supporting person or my technical expert or whomever or customer complaint service so they should have a coherent experience for all that so they kind of recognize okay we're dealing with this company now with this supplier. And that should not differ very much between the sales people in the sales organization either. So well we can talk about that a little bit later maybe but
0: Yeah it's start to sound like a customer experience you're talking about. So it actually doesn't matter are you even talking about with the support person, are you talking about with the marketing person, are you talking anyone in the company and you, you should basically get the same experience.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely you should. And I mean this is one one interesting thing. Let me rewind it a little bit. When companies contact me, they oftentimes contact me because I, I, I train uh, sales organizations and executives and so forth, study those and then train them and help them become more successful at what they do. Oftentimes there's a CEO or, yeah, or CSO, chief sales officer or, or someone up in the organization who contacts me and says, Paul, we need your help. And then I ask, okay, so, okay, uh, why do you need my help? That's, that's usually my first question. And they say, "Well, our salespeople are not performing well, so we need we need someone to train them how to sell." And I say, "Okay, that's nice. That sounds good. That's in my ballpark." But uh, do you know how to how to manage and how to lead a sales organization? And they go, "Like, what do you mean?" And I ask, "Okay, so how do you actually look at your business? How have you built it? What are you? How are you? How are you guiding your sales force, and, and how are you supporting them?" And that's where usually starts to crumble the whole story because they kind of realize, OK, it's not just about our salespeople are performing well. So usually a sales training organization will be thrown in and they would say, OK, don't make, if you want to double your sales, don't make 50 calls a week, but do 100 calls a week. And that kind of will ramp up the sales. Sure. Yeah, of course, it, it probably does, at least to some extent. But the problem is, especially in a in a European context, if you look at, If you look at Europe, which is very much B2B driven uh, in terms of sales and purchasing. If you look at North America, the US for example, there's the B2C market is, is so much bigger. And that's kind of where the most money comes in to companies. So in a B2C scenario, it's easy to just call more customers or potential customers to find them and then try to persuade them to buy your stuff, whatever you're selling. But in a B2B scenario, maybe you'd only have a few tenths of, of customers globally. So how can you double your sales just by, by calling more contacts? It's not gonna work. So it doesn't it doesn't take off like that. So that's kind of one one story, one one side of the story. Another is that salespeople in the organization are very different. I mean, of course we have those phenomenal salespeople. And I used to have that too in my organization when I was driving sales and, and leading sales. That who are very excellent at what they do. They know exactly how to do sales and they are the perfect salespeople. But that's just maybe 10% of the people in your sales organization, maybe maybe 20 if you're lucky. But then you have, well, you studies point that, okay, maybe 10, nine, 10% are the top salespeople. Then you have 20% of the sales force that are still very good, but not excellent. And then 70, 70% of the sales organization people are mediocre to laggers, okay? If you look at the- pro-
0: Who hired those people? <laughs>
1: exactly, fired that person, right? <laughs> so if you look at it this way, 70% of your sales organization in general, when we're looking through organizations across, across the industry, are mediocre to laggards laggers. So their performance is not in line with what the company is, is looking for. So those people are usually the ones who are then, then Companies get rid of them, and then they try to find new ones, and they try to kind of build a sales organization, which would only have excellent salespeople. Of course, everybody likes that, but the problem is, if you look at how those people work, I talk to executives, I I look at these organizations, and I ask their their executives, I ask, okay, so what makes your top salespeople top salespeople? And they say, Paul, I don't know. I say, what do you mean, you don't know? They just, whichever number I give them, they bring it in and they overachieve even that target that I that I give them. So I just let them do their magic and, and I don't want to I don't want to bother how they work. I don't want to mess with them. Because if they feel intimidated or they get frustrated because of my stupid questions or something, they might leave the organization. And I say, sure, that's one way of looking at it, but how on earth are you ever going to replicate your Sales sales success and in su- hiring successful salespeople if you don't even know what type of people they are and how they what they're built of, how they think, how they work, how they act, how they deal with customers, how they build that success. And that's usually what what which is kind of what we stumble on in those sales, sales organizations. People tell me, okay, or the executives tell me, Okay, so let's do the let's do the training. But usually, I do the training for the executives first, and then I do it for a sales organization, then for a sales supporting organization. But looking at it from a salesperson angle, I always study them and I research them beforehand, so I know who are the top salespeople. I will very quickly I will also see that okay, this is that person, and this is the the, the mediocre ones, and these are the laggards. And the the point with the sales training is not to bump up the whole organization and to make them excellent salespeople. that's not the point it's not going to happen you might nudge the organization a little bit forward but the top sales people what they get out of it is that they finally realize and this is what happens in trainings that i do for companies the first hour or so the salespeople, the top salespeople are kind of leaning backwards in the chair and they're a little bit like, Oh, okay, what am I doing here? I already know I already know how to do sales. I'm already perfect at this. So I don't need this this mambo jambo here. Okay. And those are usually the ones who at the end of the training of one or two day session, come to me and say, Paul, this was the best training I've ever been to. And then I asked, okay, that's great. Good to hear. So what did you get out of it? And most of they say, now I finally understand what I do and what pe- other, other salespeople people are not able to do, and so they kind of they're able to put names and concepts and models, but the names for those that they actually do intuitively already, and that's very powerful when you see that. You can just it's like mind blowing when you see people understanding what makes them different from those who are not successful. So that's one takeaway for them. So they are better able to support their colleagues, the next best category, in becoming as good one day, as good as they are. And then for the people further down the line who are not as successful, uh, the mediocre ones, you can bump them up somewhat. And for the people who are not up to a sales job, they themselves as well as executives might realize, and oftentimes I even suggest this to, to them if I, if I continue working with them, what if we move these people to not do first-line sales, but to support the sales organization instead? Because they're the perfect ones in sales support. They've done it, they tried it, they, they find it hard, but they know how, what, what's needed. So why not use these people to support the rest of the sales organization? So this can work in, in very nice ways. And, and the outcome can be just beautiful uh, if you do it right. But there's, as I said, there's many organiza- and, and many ways of doing it. I think as many ways as, as there are organizations too. Uh, So That's not like one right answer. This is exactly how you should do it. But along those lines is what I would do for a, if I had a software company or, or whichever startup, and uh, I would start building the sales for those.
0: I have so many questions. Um... One of them is that can you actually teach anything to those guys who are, are really already brilliant, and h- how do you find these people?
1: There is a combination of things. Okay, first of all, many many tell me that okay, either you are a salesperson or you're not a salesperson. That's a kind of old jargon that we hear that you're either you're born as a salesperson and you're a natural salesperson or you're not. Okay, I think there's some truth to that. So you can be born to become a racehorse or you can be a donkey, okay? A donkey will never become the most successful in a horse race, I guess, or if you're a working horse. okay. So Well,
0: is that fair for the donkey? It's not the donkey race. Exactly. So why not, why not use a donkey for something else instead?
1: I don't think that you have to be born as a salesperson because at the end of the day, what is a born salesperson? If you are born as a salesperson, it probably means that when we study these people and then we look at what makes people successful, it's usually that they are persistent in the way that they don't give in. So they're they're resilient, okay? Resilience is one where we've become very popular in the last few years. And, and used in many different ways and, and even used wrongly, I think. But anyway, aside that point, successful salespeople are probably resilient, more resilient than other people. You get approximately seven out of 10 calls, you get a no on the phone if you call someone. That's usual. It might be even up to 90% of the calls are gonna be a no, not, no thank you, we're not interested. So you need to be resilient about it and and kind of Stand up again and learn from your past experience. Okay, what should I do differently? Not just repeat the same old mantra that you've done with the next customer, potential customer, and try to get whatever you're trying to get. Is the first step to get a meeting with them, or is the first step to have them buy something from you on the phone or over email or electronically, whatever it is. You gotta know what the next step is gonna be. So being very goal-oriented, persistent, resilient, have empathy and be quite quick to learn things and also curious. I mean, you need to be genuinely curious and interested in people. As long as we deal with people, I think that's very important in that combinational, in that mix of the perfect salesperson is to be interested in people and and curious. If you look at it this way, if you're not interested in people, it's very difficult to make a good impression on people in, in a genuine way because people will see it, uh, if you're just faking it. So so that's one thing. And then, of course, people ask me, okay, can you train people, mediocre salespeople to become a, a very good salespeople or become better, very good and then excel at some point? Yes, you can. My definitive answer is yes, you can. It's gonna take a little bit longer time probably. They, they have to repeat maybe things quite a few times and they have to change and, and they have to adapt to how the customer works and they have to change who maybe how they work not who they are but how they work so those are things that, that are needed because there, there's, a, there's a catch to it where, where can i call for example to find these sales people these excellent sales people so imagine you have a startup okay you, you establish a startup and you try to find a sales organization you need 25 people in sales for global sales for your startup. What's the risk of employing 25 top salespeople from different organizations? The difficulty is going to be you're going to have most likely 25 people who work in their own ways, in different ways compared to each other. How on earth are you ever going to manage and lead that organization? How are you even going to know how they work? So it's going to be very difficult to understand what they do that makes them successful in order for you to replicate that way of working. Because that's what you're looking for. When you scale your organization for 25 people up to 50 people, up to 100 people, up to 500 salespeople globally at some point, if you are become really successful, then you can't rely on finding those excellent salespeople. Because first of all, as I said, they're going to work in different ways. Second point is it's going to be almost impossible for you to manage and lead them and and guide them and monitor them. And the third part is it's going to be very expensive. It's going to be so expensive because those people in that bracket of 9% of 10% of of salespeople globally in organizations who are the top salespeople, they can name their price. That's why, why sales executives even tell me that, okay, I don't want to mess with them. I don't want to question how they work or I don't want to kind of be micromanaging them and so forth because they're afraid that they will leave because those top salespeople, they don't need to look for a job. They get calls every week, most likely from competitors, from headhunters and so forth who ask them, would you be willing to work for us? We'll raise your... paycheck and do this and that and give you these and these benefits and and bonuses and they do what they do because they like it and they stay in those organizations because they like the organization if anything happens usually we see this when we change the incentive system or model or or reward models if they don't like it they leave and they just need to pick up the phone next time somebody's calling and they say okay well you called me a couple of weeks ago. Um, no, I'd actually be willing to hear your offer. And the next day, they are gone. And your sales might plummet in that your organization if, if you lose these couple of salespeople. That's a long story why it's going to be difficult. To, and even I disencourage people from trying to look for the excellent salespeople and hire those because it's going to be difficult and expensive.
0: Now I'm really confused. So it's like <laughs> Mission Impossible. Uh, basically, if you want to have only the sort of excellent people, they are all cowboys. So you have a bunch of cowboys. You, you cannot manage them. If you want to have a sales team, which is cooperative and you know what's happening and you have a processes, then you have just uh, the regular media group people there and there's no cowboys anymore. So no, but- can we just do marketing and forget the sales? Exactly. It's all just
1: moving to social media and, and- Post things on Twitter and do Facebook advertising and so forth and so forth and just let's let's forget about the salespeople. I mean
0: now I understand why it's so complex and nobody does the process, state yeah. of work and nothing <laughs> to be done, you know, it's all, all just a huge mess. Exactly, yeah.
1: No, it's it's not that devastating really. I mean the, the truth is, as I said that you need to look at it as any part of the organization. I mean, let's take product management. If your product is faulty, okay, it has some errors in it. It it, it just the quality is subpar, okay? What do you need to do about it? You need to reverse engineer what you're doing. You need to look at, okay, how do we do things? How does it turn into this, this garbage that, that comes out of the pipeline? And then to fix those things. And the same thing we should do in sales and look at sales in the, in the same fashion, That okay, what are we trying to achieve here? Let me step back here a little bit. If we want to build a company which is based on helping our customers succeed, which I think is the long-term plan, that we should be looking at, as opposed to the short-term profits that we can generate from quick and dirty tricking people and and forcing people to buy stuff from us. If we're looking at the long-term plan, then we should also look at how our sales organization works and if that is in line with how we actually want to help our customers create value for their organization to become successful in their market space, then, assuming that then we should look at our sales organization and start looking and finding out okay how do we work in a more optimal way that our sales organization as a sales organization not as individuals works in line with how we want to be performing in the market space for our customers okay and then we'll look at okay there might even be top salespeople who are not up to the task who are maybe just pushing products, who are used to high pressure selling and who do not want to look at the uh, benefit and the the value for value creation for our customers. So it might even be, this sounds harsh and this sounds maybe counterintuitive to someone. It might even be that we have to let these people go or let a top salesperson go. (laughs) Don't, Don't let them all go, otherwise your company will probably go bankrupt. But to change things, And if they are willing and able to change, which they usually are, because excellent salespeople are smart people, okay? They are really smart. They can really quickly grasp, okay, what does this change mean for me and for my organization and for my personal uh, bank account also? What does it mean for me, for my my revenue generation, capability, uh, ability, and also for my paycheck? The, The idea is that the whole organization would work as a whole, and you will need these excellent salespeople assuming you're able to actually convert and change a little bit the way how they work and to learn from them what makes them successful if those methods are ethical and, and kind of methods that you want to have your salespeople use. And then learn how to use them in a more broad fashion in your sales organization. So let's look at it this. I mentioned about the top 10% of sales organizations have or sales forces actually being uh, consisting of top sales people those who can be perfect for mentoring even the next category the next 20 percent who are very good at sales but not excellent and then that category or people in that category can then mentor the mediocre sales people to become better at how they do sales so that's how we can actually build these mentoring systems but we should avoid the the, the trap that many of us think that would be kind of, of course, this is how we should do things, right? That why not have the excellent salespeople mentor the mediocre ones? And they would think that they will quicker become excellent. Well, the theory there is that those two categories are too far from each other. So the excellent salesperson will become frustrated when mentoring a mediocre salesperson because he will not he or she will not understand how on earth this mediocre salesperson is not able to do these things and learn as quickly as, as he hopes that he or she would learn that's one side of thing and the mediocre salesperson will find it very very intimidating um, and, and negative to work with, a, with an excellent salesperson because he or the sale, excellent salesperson's teaching and, and, and mentoring will feel so far off for him or her so he or she cannot even relate to how this person's working. This is what studies show that, okay, this is how you should build up these mentoring systems also in organizations. So yeah, this is this is again an answer on, on your question, where do we find them? And, and is it impossible to, to change organization? No, it's not impossible at all. Uh, we just need to go in a certain methodology about it. And that, that's what I do when I train so sales organization. It's not just about, okay, this is new slide set and this is how you should enforce it on the customer. This is how you should present it. This is how you should uh, overcome the the obstacles or the rejections that customers might have and, and force them to buy from you and then close the sale and, and and then get the signature and get send the invoice and go to the next customer quickly. I mean, this is not the way you should do it, Not especially not if you want to build a, a, a business which is based on customer long-term success.
0: Let me ask you a very simple question. This might be the hardest question. How do you define sales? That's a question that I usually
1: ask my, my um, organizations that I, when I start training them, I ask them actually, what's the difference between marketing and sales? And the common way of looking at things is that, okay, marketing, I mean, most textbooks and in marketing and most managerial books and most organizations also, I kind of got this understanding that marketing generates the lead or that's the lead generating machine and then sales takes over from there and then starts working in a consistent way to transform that potential um, elusive customer lead that they have got from the marketing side and then out the pipeline comes a customer who has bought from you right and then, then it goes into account management
0: but, so been a bit of a sort of a, a nasty and, and you know simple approach so it's basically just a subset of marketing and just implementing what's already in you know, there <laughs>
1: not really no I, I said that that's not my view of things that's how organizations usually look at look at this and but as you know and, and we know and all the all the all the people out there know that things have changed a lot I mean marketing There are companies who tell me, we don't have a sales organization, we just have marketing. We have marketing, we have social media. Well, do you put those in in different brackets? No, I would not. I would probably put marketing or social media as part of marketing. Um, But then again, sales. Sales and salespeople also do social media marketing and and, uh, create online presses for the company, for the products, for the services, for themselves, for the whole team. So it's not as simple today anymore, but we kind of... For textbook clarity, we kind of like to keep it that way. Maybe that okay? sales is is, um, is not under the umbrella of marketing. I say it's definitely not, but I say they collaborate. But uh, marketing usually has the cost budget. They rarely have an, a revenue budget or revenue uh, targets. Might have that, of course, in terms of conversion and so forth nowadays. But they traditionally, they have, have had a cost budget. Whereas sales, the uh, of course they have a cost budget also, but the most important thing is the revenue stream coming in bound from the markets. But in my view, sales has to do with with um, finding whatever that means through social media marketing, be part of that, or you personally from trade fairs like in the old days, or or um, through different events or personal contacts, network. So finding potential customers, working on those and finding out, OK, what, what makes sense? Who can we help? How do we prioritize those potential customers that we might have there and then have a dialogue with them to understand their business models and the situation and then to help them uh, achieve that. And by, of course, for our selling organization to also make make uh, money on that along the way. You can also say, OK, is there a difference between sales and selling? Well you might argue no but sometimes you might argue yes there is and from my perspective there is sales is more the function the sales function and the whole kind of area the domain is sales and if you're a sales executive you're responsible for that domain with an organization and then selling is more the verb the doing of things hence you might have a sales process which is looking at from a sales leadership or sales executive perspective and the selling process would then be the steps that a salesperson and sales teams conduct when doing sales. So it's a, But this is about terminology. I mean, um, I don't want to become too academic about it. But these are things that you kind of should at least have a vocabulary in your own organization so that you understand what is marketing, what's their responsibility, what's the responsibility of sales and selling, and where does social media fit in? Okay, Is it done in collaboration between marketing and sales or is it the third area? This differs still and I think this will differ because organizations sold these in different ways.
0: And there's also the aspect that who is the one who really understands the customer needs? Is it the marketing? Is it the sales? Or is it actually the R&D, the the people who are building the products because all of these people should actually understand what the customer needs. Absolutely. That's basically the whole organization's, you know, purpose of existence. Yeah,
1: yeah, I, I totally agree on that. Yeah, I mean, having just like well, in the old days, it, it was a little bit in the textbook, for example, if you look at it t- 10, 20 years ago, textbooks, you oftentimes proclaim that, okay, a salesperson is the one who brings in the, f- the feedback to the organization. And this feedback from the market and customers is fed into the Uh, into the R&D system and they, they, they are then able to refine the products and so forth and so forth yeah to some extent but in today's day and age an organization which wants to be successful as you said Petri everybody in the organization has to understand what the customer is looking for okay so they have to have at least a basic understanding okay what is the customer looking at let's say you're back end. let's say you're HR HR is basically not in touch with the products nor is it in contact with customers really I mean not first line at least but in order for HR to perform in an optimal way they have to know what type of resources are needed in the company either you hire them or you uh, use other type of solutions like uh, hiring freelance or then outsourcing things and so forth and so forth. So you need to know what type of capabilities, what type of competences are needed in order to solve and in order to meet and in order to exceed those customer expectations. So the customer feels that it's worthwhile working with you in the first place as an, as an organization and they come back to you and they want to come back to you as an organization and, and as a supplier. So definitely even HR, I'm not saying that even HR as if it would be so far off from the customers, but but it's kind of the best, uh, maybe, maybe the best kind of example that I had at this instant here. Everybody needs to understand what the customer really wants and needs and what makes them tick and what's the customer uh, experience, what it's built off. So even the janitor in the in the company, imagine you have a customer walking through your premises or next to your premises and your janitor walks out the door and he or she does not greet, but, but instead maybe grumps at the, at the at the customer who is is, uh, outside your premises. That will have an effect on the total experience that the customer will have only by this one small encounter. If it's uh, really negative, it might have an implication that that this person thinks, I don't want to work with this company anymore. It it can be as simple as that.
0: And usually it is, it's those tiny things. It's something you have omitted to do. If, If your process is not working, your delivery process is not working, you're not just saying that, hey, uh, actually it's coming tomorrow hope you're okay if you don't do anything you're already irritating the customer or if the delivery person is, is saying hey uh, i don't want to go one floor to to your place so can you come downstairs and pick it up from my truck yeah so it's tiny things or it's a customer support customers always right. and, and hey there's something wrong with your uh, invoice and, and and they say no there's nothing and, and that's the end of the discussion. And these are actually three examples from my life in the last month. So I think it matters because I have stopped doing business with some of these organizations just because it feels like that they don't need my business. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the classic example that we have now from uh, the last 10, 15 years, it has become becomes so widely used solution to outsource your customer complaint or technical support or, or any call center functions to another country, let's say, and I don't want to finger point at any organizations or countries or similar, but I think I'm sure you get the grasp here that if you give a support line in English, you have international customers calling in. Uh, Let's say you have from people from uh, Scandinavia, for example, calling a a customer center, uh, which should speak English, understandable English, and then it's outsourced to a country somewhere far off where they speak very different English. And you might not even understand what they actually say on the phone this is really annoying to not understand what the person is and this happened to me and my wife my wife was calling one of these organizations uh, it was a flight ticket she had a problem with the flight ticket we needed to, to reroute her and so forth uh, this was obviously last year so this year we haven't traveled much uh, by air as, as most people have not she called the support line. and she had to tell the person to, please just stop, just stop. I, I need to get my husband on the line. And she, she walked to me and gave me her mobile phone and said, can you talk to this person? I don't understand what she's saying. And so it can be really that small incident and that kind of put her off from that airline because she said, I don't want to call that support line anymore. I don't want to fly on this airline. And that sure, the airline can think that, okay, it's just one, one customer out of a million customers per year. But gradually, it's going to eat up gradually, slowly but gradually, it's going to eat up your on your business. I mean, th- this is what happens. A classic example, look at Uber. Why did Uber succeed so quickly? Uh, many people say, it's because of their business model, because they were cheaper and so forth and so forth. I don't think that was the whole truth. Because looking at it from this angle, uh, we all remember how, how many taxi
0: drivers... Um, you just want to the mute them. You don't find a mute pattern.
1: Oh yeah, that, that's yeah that, yeah, that's one thing. And, and look at it this way. If you get subpar service, you think that okay, um, bummer, I, I would rather ride with somebody else, but then you find that okay, maybe that the taxi company is maybe just like this one or the, the taxi driver uh, in the other car is, is probably the same. okay. So we kind of got used to a certain level of service. And then there comes this one company that provides a service which is different. And we think, thank God, finally, I don't have to ride a normal taxi anymore, okay? So we we find this interesting to have the the silence maybe in the car, as you said, to have the mute button on the person. The person asks you, do you want to be for yourself or do you want to communicate? And so forth. It's much more of a customer experience that I actually get when riding. It's not just Uber. Other companies similar to those. It's almost like a touch button in the car, an invisible one, where you can actually have a dialogue with a person, you can get to know about the city for there for the first time, or you can just push, as you said, the mute button. And you can sit there and look at your slides, or you can look out the window and just be in, be in total silence. So, and, and the whole payment thing is just like super easy. I remember the first time I used it, this kind of a solution was in the US. And I went to the airport and uh, I was super busy. I was about to, to miss my flight. And I started fiddling around with my wallet and I was like, oh my God, right okay so now I have to wait for him or her in this case a him to take out the, uh, the credit card payment thingy and he's not even making a move and I'm waiting my credit card already and then I realize we'll get to the airport he just opens the trunks and says we're here sir and I'm like right exactly I don't even need to pay here. It's, it's everything happens in the background so it's that kind of experience that we're looking for and I think traditional taxi companies they missed out on that so that's a small customer experience thing that can deteriorate your business. I think that's one of the reasons why these uh, alternative solutions have grown as quickly as they have.
0: Yeah, there's, uh, for example, that mutex uh, example I was just uh, taking. It comes from those five stars. You have to be sensitive to the customers. Because there's a rating system. Previously, there was no rating system for taxi drivers. Usually, there was probably some way of complaining if something went really badly wrong. Yeah, yeah. But usually, there was no way. And now, the the drivers know that if they're not checking what's the vibe of the customer, what they want, do they want to talk, do they want to do work, or or how, how they feel, it will be impacting the ratings and, and sometimes they will be kicked off from the system totally. Absolutely. And this is, this is kind of funny.
1: It's good both ways. Actually, I learned that this, this kind of the hard way. Uh, we're traveling in, um, I think it was in Minneapolis. Yeah, I was traveling there and uh, I stayed at an Airbnb apartment and the person, the landlord told me looked at me when I when I came in the door and greeted me of course and was very friendly and then that we went upstairs and he showed me the the, the premises and, and everything and I had like uh, the total floor there for myself in a two-story building yeah but it was pretty great yeah good experience and he told me yeah I was a little bit worried accepting you as my as my host and I said what do you mean about that is yeah because you've been a little bit critical when it comes to some apartments that you've been staying at in uh, different parts of the world and I said yeah I'm, I'm pretty I like to give feedback and I, I like to be honest about this feedback I'm not nitty-gritty and I don't want to downplay things and I don't want to raise some negative things to an unnecessary proportion but I just want to highlight okay if, if it's dirty uh, in the corners or on the floor or wherever the bed is that is is not made or something like this. Of course, I want to highlight this to people so that we get a a system that actually works. But he said, yeah, because we want to keep our, he wants to keep his superhost badge. So I can't afford taking customers who are not giving me a five-star rating. And I thought, wow, man, think about this, Petri. I mean, the whole system is wired in that way that Those ones who want to have high ratings also want to choose their customers, okay? So so this kind of puts the pressure on both sides. This is is good and bad, of course, but in a bad way it is that, okay, you you don't get rewarded for really being honest about things. So this can also kind of twist the thingage. This basically just shows that how you can actually misuse the system so It actually goes against the whole intended uh, way of how things are going to go. So the system might twist the whole reality. So that's also one thing. But it just shows that, okay, these small incidents can have an effect on the customer experience, but it can also have an effect on the supplier, in this case, the Airbnb host, a supplier experience.
0: So what is the dark side of customer relationships when you say no? When you need to be picky and say no i don't want to have you as a customer
1: well i think that's a, that's a great question and uh dark side of close relationships that actually was was a, a study that was made in 2005 uh, by by two researchers and um sandy and jeff and uh they studied and they kind of started a stream looking at customer relationships that turn sour so the dark side of customer relationships And that means that you can sometimes have customer relationships which actually turn against you. So it's not always the intended result that we should always give and give and give and give to the customer and make the customer feel super happy all the time. Because at the end of the day, looking at this way, you also want to make a profit, assuming you're uh, not an NGO. Or, or non-profit organization. Assuming that you want to make a profit, you should do that also. So then you should start looking, okay, what, what type customers are worthwhile building a relationship with, which generate a positive result for us, a profit that is, per, per the, uh, for the customer account. Then there are those customer accounts where we pour in a lot of effort and and love and compassion and, and empathy and all these things. And we make that, We make everything we can, but it just doesn't pan out. It's too difficult or the customer doesn't want. Or it works beautifully for a while, but then it turns against you because the customer becomes uh, or actually maybe the customer or it might even be supplier becomes cozy and lazy. And so people are in general quite lazy. Actually, We, we as human beings, we're wired to being a little bit lazy so we're not always as efficient as we proclaim to be and as we want to be and and that can turn against you so that somebody's taking who you build a customer relationship with or supply relationship with that closed relationship turns sour because the other party starts taking advantage of you and of the situation and it might be intended or it might be unintended but anyway the result is that they're taking advantage of it so you get less than what you actually give or what you pay for. So there was an example in this particular study. Um, And again, I don't want to finger point on any countries or any people, but it's out there. It's knowledge that is out there. Uh, There's a car manufacturer who used an Italian car paint company to paint the cars, the chassis of the cars. Now, they were supposed to put a couple of layers of the paint on the car I don't remember the exact number but let's say it's it's three layers of paint right and they did that at, at, in the beginning but then they started kind of cheating because they thought well we can cut costs by just putting two layers of of spray or color on the car so they did that they only went with two so they saved one okay so you can just imagine if you have thousands tens of thousands of cars even more and you save one round of paint on each of every of these cars. It aggregates; the numbers get big very quickly. Uh, but they they were caught for that, so they got caught, and uh, they then admitted, "Yeah, sure, yeah, we did this." So of course the customer relationship it turned sour. They were not chosen anymore to to continue the contract and so forth. So they lost the contract. But anyway, so this just shows that even in a intended good relationship things can turn sour if there are enough loopholes and and the kind of the person or the organization thinks that we can get away with it so this is the dark side of relationships and as said it can go in both ways it can go that the customer becomes too cozy or complacent or just wants to cheat uh, and take advantage of you or it might be the supplier does that so it depends on there are also, also measures how to actually go about this and uh, there are a few methods how you can actually um, avoid this situation so it's not as, as dark as it sounds that okay we, we have to run this risk but we can also avoid these risks but it's possible.
0: So trust but verify?
1: Uh, trust but verify yeah the kind of one but kind of I was referring to the met- methods of how to do that so one, for example, is that you have a mutual agenda, that you have mutual targets set out there and written down so that you actually know exactly what you're supposed to be doing, and then both are more vested in that. It can be, of course, that the output based uh, model. So basically, that to what you get out of the business both profit from that. Uh, that's another way. A third way is reporting and monitoring, of course, so that you yeah, as you said that you you trust but you do monitor so you need to have certain visits and it might be that you agree in the, in the contract that we will do um, visits to your facilities and uh, we don't have to report about it that in advance we just pop in and we do a, a basically a raid of what you're doing so this is one method that's kind of on the brutal side but very efficient and then um, Then there's also personal relationships so that we don't rely on a few people actually doing the business because they they might be working and collaborating. So when we have the larger part of the organization involved in this, then we have different kind of layers and different people who are also vested in this decision and in in this methodology and, and processes and working models so that we can better ensure that that we don't skip any important steps or work in a subpar manner. So these are just some very basic things, how we can do things. Of course, um, investment models can also be used for that. So you buy up a chunk of that company and you get more say in that company, for example.
0: How do you make people want to buy from you?
1: I think it's quite easy in the way that uh, if you are looking at the customer value, I mean the customer many people talk about customer experience let's just differentiate between two different things here customer experience is the kind of total experience that you as a customer get from dealing with someone and that can be through marketing, social media as we said, the janitor on, the, on the, uh, in the premises or what the executives say in the, in the media or it can be how the person is treating you on the phone, email whatever channel that is so that's a customer experience and that will then result in some customer or some value for the customer okay so there's some value attached to that okay what type of experience if it's a negative or positive or if it's if it's actually tapping into your personal values also that is probably going to be stronger so if you help through the customer experience and the, through the customer interactions which are part of that total customer experience if we through those instances help the customer create value for them and succeed better or solve their situation what they're aiming at then the customer might and probably perceives us as meaningful for them for achieving their goal for achieving their wishes for achieving their deep dreams or at least getting closer to those and that In itself can then create a platform for success for us that means if somebody finds that okay I get it I I get value out of this by by working with with Petri for example in his company okay and uh, he works in a way and they as an organization work in a way that I think is a good way for my company for my needs for my wishes then of course I want to go back to you and say okay I want to continue working with you And that's a great platform for success going forward. Of course, assuming that does not generate profit yet, but it generates a platform, it creates a platform for success. And that means if your organization then does things in a nice way that I think this is the way we should be working in together and you're able to articulate the value that I get out of working with you and the use of the services or products or solutions that your company produces and I then understand that and I can also put a price tag on that I can understand okay this will help me do this and this quicker save time or generate more money or or make me feel more secure if it's a security solution whatever it is or, or make me live longer for example then I'm willing to probably pay for that or to give something in return it can be that I give my data now that's the that's the money that you make money on then or that's the that's currency that you make money on then. Or it might be that I actually pay something for that. And once the, once the, the payment in which form or shape it is, if that payment for your services that creates value for me is in line with that level of value that I feel that I'm, I'm getting out of this, if that's on a good level, then I'm willing to pay for that. But again, if, if you under-promise and over-achieve as an organization, then your company is actually leaving money on the table. Now, this sounds very harsh. And the, uh, the reverse also applies. If you over-promise and under-achieve, then I, as a customer, am the one who is missing out on things. So I'm actually, you're overcharging in that way. So I think they should be in, in some kind of a balance that is close enough. And usually it's a good balance and the customer wants to get come back if they feel that they actually get a little bit more value than they paid for. And then of course, it's up to your organization uh, or the seller's organization to see that we don't burn the money along the way before it then translates into into profits for the organization and maybe shareholders or whatever we have. So that's a that's how we actually can make customers want to come back. So we need to be attractive. We need to be the known as the go-to organization, and each and every person in that organization optimally should be the go known as the go-to person for whatever area of responsibility that person has, whether he or she is a product manager or uh, project manager or delivery person or service person or salesperson or marketing person, whatever it is that the customer is looking for at that instant in those very specific uh, customer interactions. Each and every one optimally should be the go-to person that the customer comes first in mind is that okay, I want to work with this person. And that happens to be the person in your organization. Then we have a good shot at at the customer wanting to come back. So I kind of I want to go that way. You see that I have kind of a maybe soft approach in things, but, but it has that there's a profit, of course, um, attached to that. So a profit expectation is attached to that value generation. It's not just about giving, 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 but we give and we give and then we have to be able to, to also get in return. So as opposed to forcing people to buy from you, that's the worst scenario we can have. So that we force people to buy from you because we think that we have a lock-in situation or we actually have a lock-in situation or we are the monopoly company or we have a a, a dominant market position. Now we force customers to buy from us. Well, guess how long they will be willing to come back to us? Only for as long as they have to. As soon as they have an alternative, like we discussed with the taxi business, then they might jump ship. So you might end over overnight losing 20-30% of your business or even more as as soon as there is an alternative. So I think that's that's why I kind of proclaim and think very highly of, of um, looking at the customer end of things, the customer experience, the customer value.
0: You were not always academic before you were Actually, doing sales and building sales organizations. Can you tell us something about that? Before we go into that story, tell something funny. Uh, you just mentioned me about uh, you were in, a, in in France in Paris, and yeah. something happened while you were with the customers. Let's have a bit of fun and then go to your personal story. Yeah, maybe. let's let's do that. Yeah, it was a, it was quite a funny story. It was actually happening in now uh,
1: already 1990, late 90s, uh, 1996. It was in France in Paris so we had a meeting and i was working for an organization at that point in time so i was before my academic career i worked uh, 15 years in in selling and sales management in the area of b2b and b2g so business 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 government so i was representing finland where i was based in at that time people eight people represented different countries in, in europe and we met up in paris for a meeting and we went to this nice hotel and we had the of course the um, host was the French director and uh, he took us to this restaurant and and we we went there and we had a great dinner with French wine and French food and French uh, everything and uh, which I like very much but I didn't know how it works so after main course they come and ask okay so um, any desserts anyone and uh, I was a big fan of cheese I I like different kinds of cheese and so forth goes well with wine and uh, the French executive told me that okay well why don't you take the cheese uh, platter and i said yeah i'll do that and i I ordered that and the waiter comes back after a moment with a small cart filled with cheese i'm filled to the brim with cheese i was oh my god he really understood that i really really love cheese so there are all kinds of cheeses there and he brought it next to me next to my my where i was sitting at the end of the table and I thought, wow, this is going to take a while. So I uh, I started eating, and I kept on eating the the, the cheese, and then the waiter comes back, and is uh, he, kind of grabbing the the, the cart, and I was no, please don't don't take it yet, and <laughs> and then he came <laughs> back, he came back, and 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 the, the French executive looked at me and like, you really like cheese, Paul. That was kind of a hint that I didn't get it. And I said, "Yeah, I love cheese." And then I continued eating. I continued eating, and my my, I'm just about to explode. And the fourth time, the waiter came. Fourth. Back, fourth time, the waiter came back.
0: Man, you don't take hints.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when he came back, and I said, "I really sincerely apologize, but um, I'm so stuffed. I, I can't have any more of your cheese. I'm sorry. I I have to." I can't have it all and he said that's okay sir and he took the card the wheeled off and I was a little bit like okay well he, at least he didn't take it as an offense and then the French executive he tapped me on my shoulder and, and whispered in my ear and said Paul you were just supposed to take a few bites of the cheese on your table and then he would then he would bring it to the next tables the rest of the cheese because as you see, all the other tables are looking at you and they were actually waiting for the cheese which you have almost like eaten up already. That was my kind of, uh, yeah, being in the deep end of the pool in France when it comes to cheese and I was not able to swim there. So it's it's a bit embarrassing a story, but it's kind of fun when you look at years years back. But you closed the sails. Yeah, well it, it was actually more of a strategy meeting that we had there, so but we did succeed very well in that company. So at least it uh, it generated money, what we were doing there in Paris. So that's kind of a really nice story, I think.
0: Did you start with sales? Did you do something else before? You you've been also working in, in startups and, and building sales organizations. Can you tell something about your early days? Sure. Yeah. And then why did you, you know, come to do what do you do now? Yeah,
1: yeah. It's uh Yeah, there's a story to that too, as to almost everything. So when I studied, I actually studied um, economics and marketing and business. And in those days, there were no courses in selling and sales management at a a university. So I did my master's of science in in economics, uh, majoring in marketing and and international sales or international business and finance, actually. And then I started working for an automotive company. That was a company I was working for uh, also in when being in Paris which is just explaining and then I moved from there to Germany and it was the sales position that I was I was in so I actually I wanted to work in sales from day one when I left the or the business school at the university so I so I decided I want to work in sales and the reason for that was that my dad used to work in sales now he has passed away but he used to work in sales and uh, I learned at a very young age that if you' work in sales you can travel a lot <laughs> if you want to if you want to work work in international sales you, you have to travel and I just happened to love traveling that was one of the things kind of a, things that I liked about my job and also the freedom to make choices I mean big choices also when it comes to um, selecting customer accounts and working on those and, and being able to talk to different level of people in, in the organization you can talk to CEOs you can talk to anybody in the strategy department if you have a compelling story you're you're probably going to talk to everybody from purchasing and logistics up to marketing up to their sales up to their uh, product management up to their C level and so forth so it's kind of almost like being a consultant of course I was working in, in more complex solutions and so forth, complex solution selling you might call it and, and that kind of gave me an opportunity of working at different levels and really creating business for, for companies. And I was quite successful at doing that. And, and there was one company I, I jumped in. They hired me and I was number nine when I entered. And I think we were just short of 100 people when I, when I left the organization. And then, of course, uh, we were building sales and being quite successful at that. And when you are that, then other people start saying, okay, hey, could you do the same for our company? So actually I was involved in about
0: 16. Uh, Let's pause for uh, just a quick question. Sure. Paul, are you a cowboy? Well, (laughs) I I
1: was kind of a semi-cowboy, yeah. I was a semi-cowboy in the sense that I was, if you're referring to being successful. uh, Yeah, yeah, are you
0: you the, the top sex guy? Yeah i was who took once the call and then next day you were gone i
1: i was that and uh and it worked out very nicely i i can say from a for you a, for me yeah but also for that's why i said semi cowboy because i also i didn't just think about my profit generation mechanism and how how, how i profit from that but I always have been looking at, OK, how can the organization and the shareholders of those organizations profit from what we're doing? So I always try to keep the bigger scope and also foremost look at, OK, what does what's in it for the customer? And I think that has been the determining factor for me to succeed in different companies, because I don't have a one model fits all. Well, maybe the one model would actually be that I'm looking at the customer and, and what makes them tick and what makes them successful, and then derive the way I'm working in different organizations from that point. So yeah, and I always was, I've always been very keen on building a team around me. So knowing whom to contact uh, when the customer needs something, or even at the customers. I never left it up to the customer to, to find the person in their organization. I always did person almost like headhunting in their organization to find who's responsible for this, who's responsible for that, who can help us further in that so back in the days when I was working in the telecom sector I was helping 16, 16 17, 16 at least startups um, startups in the sense that either they were startups in Europe or they were established companies in the US but who did not have a um, any, any, any substantial operations or any operations in Europe so those were companies who contacted me and said, "We would like you to build a sales organization for us and a, and a, and create sales for us." And that's what I did. So those were startups, usually in the software and telecoms industry. So that's how I know quite a lot about how to build startups and how to build organizations that work, and 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 what you should focus on, especially if you're in the in the on the innovative side of things, where you have an innovative product, an innovation which you then try to bring on out in the market and then of course there are many hoops and loops you need to get through and and one of them is how far do we productize it before we got in the market in order to make it uh, still able to flex that and to adjust it to, to according to the market needs and so forth so there's kind of a balance there so that's what i did and i of course ended up recruiting a lot of people in these organizations because my job was to start from scratch usually I was the first person the first cowboy to work for them and then my job was to take uh, ownership and responsibility for that operation in Europe so my job was to find a strategy for or create a strategy look at do they have a strategy should that be tweaked or, or completed or revamped or what should we do about it does it work in the same strategy in that they have in the US for example in North America does it work in Europe or should it be changed and many times it, it needed to be changed. So I did kind of a strategy part of that first, and uh, then it comes into to bring those ideas and concepts and, and sometimes even products, if they are ready, to friendly customers that I knew in the telecom sector or software industry or, or large enterprises or even smaller enterprises, and try them out and find find out okay what could be the market for these who could be interested and why should they be interested and what could that generate them and how should we price it and all these models what could the business with payment model be etc etc and I hired then the salespeople for those organizations of course not every organization was successful some of them I had to kind of turn down and say okay uh, well I I did screen about 100 companies per year that I was looking for uh, or looking at when they wanted me to work with them so there was a lot of inbound companies coming and out of those were 16-17 companies filtered out that i worked for usually i worked two companies concurrently because they were in different stages so that was possible and when i hired salespeople people for these organizations to build their sales teams and then then hand over the accounts to them that i had signed and, and won or developed and then they continue that and that at the end of the day i replaced myself with an executive um, hired from from another company from the market I had one common problem in these organizations the problem was finding salespeople right finding the right type of salespeople and that's why I thought that well I'll, I'll do the shortcut why don't I just go to universities and business schools who have selling and sales programs and contact their alumni and find good people there and I went to different schools in different countries or so called them and contacted them and I asked well do you have a sales program and oh, they said no we don't and every, every university basically turned me down and they said we don't have that and I said how can that be this was back in 2008 how can you have business schools still today who don't have a selling and sales program I mean how is that even possible I mean Patrick think about it You have have finance, you have HR, you have organization (laughs) theory, you have bookkeeping, you have everything, you have marketing, but sales is not there. Uh, Who needs sales? Exactly. Exactly. My point exactly, who needs sales? Why bother, right? So nothing had really changed since the days when I studied at university level. So I thought that, well, maybe somebody should do something about it.
0: And that sounds like an entrepreneur approach. Exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of a
1: problem solving approach. Okay. What do we do about this? Now, we should fix this. Right. So that's what I did. And I contacted a uh, business school in Finland where I kind of knew the professor a little bit from, from 15 years before when I had taken a course there. And I contacted him and I said, is it true that your business school doesn't have a sales, selling sales program? And he said, that's right, Paul, we don't. I said well shouldn't you have and I said yeah I, I totally agree with you we should have and that's when I said okay well what if I did a PhD in my naivety I didn't know what it actually entails but I asked him so, so <laughs> what if I did a PhD in selling a sales manager? could that maybe inspire somebody in the organization and the community to actually to to do something about it and start creating a program for that and start creating courses for that and doing research in that and and making that appealing for the students and he said well it could yeah sure it could and then he said why I said well well let let me fly there next week I flew up to Finland to meet with this person in in question and uh, within two hours I'd explained to him what I could do a PhD on what I could do it not so what would the problem area be and so forth and so forth and he kind of helped me reroute it and and, and re, redraft it and then he said okay so uh, if you have the time and money for that so money of course in Finland is not an issue in, in terms of education because the education still does not cost but he was referring to the alternative cost of not doing my profit generating work but rather spend some of my time in, on doing a PhD uh, thesis and the course is related to that and I said sure yeah I think I can do that so I'll just take a sabbatical from my work and then do that and I thought it would take a one year or two years or something like this maximum and naive as I was so kind of second year is approaching its end and I'm like kind of, wow I'm still not even even close to being ready and then I thought okay now I have to ditch the, the projects that I'm working on I, I'm not going to take on any new projects so I'm going to really focus the third year I focus completely on the PhD and. The fourth year then I was uh, I was finished so four years after entering the university or business school I was ready with a PhD and I thought that was very slow I mean of course for an entrepreneur and people being entrepreneurs and, and kind of fast-minded business we want things to happen yesterday right so I thought it was this was quite slow a pace and I always said well maybe it's because I was working half time the two first years right but then it kind of somebody told me that okay Paul uh, you're obviously not aware that it takes about five point eight years for people at this business school to to get their PhDs. So I was still about two years ahead of the 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 average uh, person as a as a PhD there.
0: What's the number usually done for full full time students? Correct. So five point eight full time, and you did it only one year full time and two years before just part time. Correct. Yeah, that's part of the equation. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and in the beginning, you say that this is the shortcut to recruit people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly, I did and then little did I know because I was traveling uh, I was living in southern France at that point of time, and I was traveling there. I had to buy an ice hockey bag in Finland I actually went to, uh, to to a sports goods store and I bought the biggest ice hockey bag I could find. And you know what it was for?
0: No idea I, I don't I don't even want to guess for books. For books, so I had about
1: 30, 40 kilos of books and articles printed in my bag that I was carrying around Europe when going from place to place to to visit some clients and and reading the books for real, yeah, for real, and reading the books in the evenings and, and reading them on the airplanes and so forth. So
0: talking about copying lockets exactly. <laughs> and traveling light, you know, yeah, I just have this T-shirt, but you know, it's the books. <laughs> yeah, and. and uh,
1: Actually Lufthansa caught me once on this and that and it was it was actually when I was leaving Finland I had again stacked up some some books in my in my bag and because I had that that was a bag I kind of had it as sports goods always in my in my luggage and then I had a regular uh, check-in bag and then I had my cabin bag okay and then I had my laptop uh, bag also with me so I had kind of four bags that I was carrying around the ice hockey bag being the most uh, weighing the most of course so at one time at the Helsinki airport. They actually stopped me when I was checking in the bag and I had the bag tag already printed and everything ready to go, as usual. And they said, sir, would you would you be kind and of open the bag? And I said, like, no, what, you want to see my my, my ISO key things? Are, or what? It's pretty smelly, it's still like sweaty things in there. Yeah, but sir, um, w- we need to see what it is. And I reluctantly, I, I opened the zipper and uh, and the person goes like, "This is not ice hockey material here." I said, "Well, oh yeah, I have some books here." And they looked through the, the bag and they only found books there and and, and binders of articles. And I say, "Sir, this is not what sports goods bags are for, for trans- transporting the books." <laughs> and I say, "Yeah, sorry, I'm kind of, I'm in the middle of my PhD thesis here, so I need to carry these things and I can't do it otherwise." And they I was nice to them and they, they got the problem and so forth and, and, and being a salesperson's sweet talking things and so forth and they kind of said okay we can write off so and so many kilos from this but for the rest you have to pay so it was I think it was 10 euros per kilo that I had to pay extra for that it became a little bit of an expensive bag for me to carry around but this was really in the latter part of the dissertation period that this happened so I had to carry that I don't know how many times across Europe and it always worked as a charm. But this time I was caught, and then, then after that, I started paying attention to how many kilos of books I, I carry around.
0: So you throw in some skates and a towel there as well. Exactly, yeah, some some sweaty undies and so forth
1: to, to just kind of distract them from the whole fact. But yeah, that, that, as you said, it was kind of a long, long route to finding people. And then it didn't stop at that, actually. But what happened was, it. At the business school, their MBA school, it's the Hankins School of Economics of Finland, their MBA school asked me, Paul, could you do a uh, selling a sales management course for our executive MBAs? I said, sure, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can I can put it together. But uh, who's going to give it? Well, we thought you would. I said, well, that's a little bit a lot to ask, but uh, OK, I could do it one year. So, But then you have to find somebody to, to replace me on and continue with that. And now it's like the seventh year or something that I'm giving that course. So uh, they didn't find a replacement, but I'm still looking at finding a replacement for myself so I can actually focus more on business even in the future.
0: So are there now more sales departments and are there more people doing sales? And- uh,
1: I don't want to mention the name, but but there was a, a very promising doctoral student that I had, actually the first at Hanke School of Economics, uh, focusing on selling as management. But uh, she was recruited to a company. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> oh, that's the reason they all recruited away. Yeah, Goodbye. yeah, and, and and people, even master students, who
1: take my, I give some courses at time still for the, uh, at least until end of this year. I've done that. So now now the past, I've had actually two professorships in selling and sales management. One at Hanka School of Economics and one at the rival university, the other big university in Finland. So I had concurrently two professorships in sales management, uh, those universities. So that just shows that there was a demand for that, but there was too little supply. So I was chosen to to be that two rivaling schools at the same time. So that just shows how much interest there is. Uh, Of course, few salespeople come back to academia. I'm one of the stupid people, one of the few in the world who have actually done that. And uh, I still, sometimes I ask myself, no, I'm not so sure it was the most intelligent move that I've ever done in my life but it has certainly given a lot to those hundreds or maybe a couple of thousand already students that I've actually taught uh, through the years in selling and sales management so positive side of things is that they get good jobs okay they're really quickly hired and I get organizations contacted me and say Paul could you maybe give on our information that we have a job opening in this area to your students for example or to your, to your previous students with which I am quite a good contact with uh, to at least uh, some of those not all and uh, I think this kind of has worked nicely on, on a higher level if you will that from a social perspective of from my part from my microscopic view I've actually helped um, maybe the the, the, the industry become a little bit better in, in terms of selling and sales management through the output of the students that I've actually been teaching and also hopefully the research that I've been doing in this area. I'm going to focus more going forward now on again working with companies and getting involved. I'm sitting in a board of a company, a very interesting company and uh, my area of, of kind of what I'm looking at is how they develop their sales and how they could perform better and how they can become more customer focused and focusing more on customer value. So these are kind of things that I'm going to work on more going forward. So this is kind of maybe a sneak preview of what's coming next year and so forth. Theories after that, I will probably keep one foot in the academia, but it's getting less and less because I have more interest in working in the, in the, in the, in the business area.
0: What is your favorite word?
1: My favorite word uh, or maybe name is Loppam. Now, that, uh, that means flee in Swedish, and that's what I call my daughter. And she, she loves that. That's a very common word in Sweden. If you go to some playgrounds and there are kids and their parents you usually call them loppan. But I think that's such a sweet word and kind of very catchy when it comes to small children. I love that.
0: What is your least favorite word? It must be Greed.
1: Greed, like Gordon Gecko said in the times in the film, that greed is good. I think greed is not good. I think there needs to be some um, target-orientedness, but greed is not the thing in my vocabulary. At least, not the not the favorite ones.
0: What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally?
1: Creatively, it's. I think it's water. I think it doesn't matter if I'm if I'm taking a shower or if I'm. If I'm swimming in a swimming pool or a lake or or in the sea, or if I'm surfing the waves somewhere on Bali, sitting on my surfboard, usually when I'm on the surfboard, uh, riding it, then I don't have time to think anything. But uh, when I'm sitting there waiting for the waves, that that's kind of where where, where things come into my mind. Maybe it it's because I. That's a few occasions that I really can let let go of things. So that's also a spiritual um, experience almost uh, I mean not taking a shower but <laughs> yeah, surfing that's kind of what I would say that that's a spiritual and also emotional experience I think one emotional experience was actually was in in Colorado uh, training executives there and I was up and looking at the Sawtooth Mountain Sawtooth Mountain that's up in the hills up in the mountains and it was just such a beautiful evening And the clouds were just phenomenal. The lighting was perfect. And there was only the wind that I could hear. That was maybe the most spiritual experience that I've had on. I mean, an earthly experience that I've had um, from a spiritual
0: point of view. What turns you off?
1: Well, I think it goes together with with greed and stress. I mean, certain type of stress is good. But if I see that the stress is either greediness or unmeaningful, then, then, I think that really turns me off.
0: What is your favorite
1: curse word? a uh, Swedish word which means uh, damned. <laughs> not, not, very, not maybe not the most powerful word of words uh, in terms of cursing, but uh, that that's gonna be it. Yeah.
0: What sound or noise do you love? When my daughter
1: comes next to me early in the morning, and she whispers in my ear and says, Daddy, are you awake? I think that's the most beautiful sound that I, that I can hear. Apart from that, it could, it would be the waves.
0: What sound or noise do you hate? Scooters.
1: I really, <laughs> when living down in southern France, uh, you know the story. You, you, you've been there yourself, you live there yourself, and you know the amount of scooters out there. It's just we're not talking about the e-scooters. No? no, we're definitely not. We're talking the old school, smelly, petrol, fumey, horrible scooters. I mean, would those drive uphill next to your apartment? That just drives me nuts.
0: What profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
1: Mm, that's a very that's a difficult one. Of course, I have hobbies. Yeah, that's one thing. But turning hobbies into a profession like photography, for example, or surfing uh, not that I, I ever imagined that I could compete with Kelly Slater and the guys uh, and be successful at that at least not, not, uh, not winning them but um, so I think it, I trying to kind of keep it I'm a little bit trying to evade, evade the question maybe in the sense that I know what I do I'm good at what I do I know what I do, I read the things that I do I've studied them and so forth. So I think I'm pretty good when it comes to my own profession. But uh, so I want to stick to that. I don't want to become something that I'm not very good at. Maybe, maybe it has with age to do. So I get a little bit more careful with it by age that I try to stick to my guns.
0: What profession would you not like to do? I don't really know
1: if there's any profession that I would not like to do. Maybe, Maybe work in a coal mine as the that's probably got to be one of those areas so any profession which is hazardous or dangerous and which i cannot make sound judgment or decisions on i think any of these and and monotonous work sorry anybody doing that out there but um, doing something for example driving a a taxi Uh, we spoke about taxi before but driving a taxi for example just make me go nuts Uh, partly because of my back, because I have a little bit of a bad back, uh, sports injuries. So uh, it doesn't allow me to sit so much. So I, I try to avoid that. The same goes for airline captain, for example, or pilot. I couldn't do that either because of that reason. That would be nicer, but uh, at least you get to travel. But yeah, I guess I will, I will not do that.
0: If you could be a co-founder of any startup in any air, which one would you choose?
1: Well, it could be the Amazon back in the days when Jeff Bezos started it. I mean, that that could be, I think it was such a brilliant story how he came came up with the whole um, whole business and changing from what he did before that to, to changing into what he does with, with, did with Amazon. Now it is, of course, grown a little bit out of proportion that I would like to run it. Uh, back in the early days, I think that could be one of those. I'm not saying that it would be the only one, but it probably could be one of those companies
0: any final words for the audience
1: well maybe final words is that we've been talking about startups we've been talking about corporations and many people say that okay or or, or at least i keep hearing this that okay but it differs paul what you do and what you teach and what you train and how you uh, advise companies to work it works nicely in in corporations but it doesn't work for startups And uh, I disagree with that because looking at it this way they both are usually looking at the same types of customers it might be be exactly the same customer that you're approaching so it doesn't differ that much if you as a vendor are a startup a small company even a a one-man-in-show or if you're a corporation with with 50,000 employees because at the end of the day The customer has a challenge, okay? They have something they want to get sold or they need something and so forth. And I think understanding that avenue and and embracing that idea of we're in it for the customer and and for creating value for the customer. The one who creates most value for the customer is probably gonna be the one who wins the deal, okay? And I think my advice is that regardless if you're an, an, um, a corporation or a startup the executives in the organization whether it's you and your dog or it's you and your c-level people need to embrace the whole idea of customer value creation if, you, if you're in it for the long term of course if you're deciding on a week we just want to compete by having the lowest price well good for you for as long as it works for your company but the day might come that somebody else offers something cheaper so then you are in the game of having to choose your strategic route again so oftentimes we come back to the point that okay customer value creation is the most important then of course you need to understand your customer understand your customer that will be the second bullet point of my list of my my, that I would say first understand or embrace the, the whole value concept then understand your customers and then from that You can then derive how you work. What's the the approach going to be? What's the strategy going to be for your strategies that you uh, apply in your company? What's the process going to look like or processes for different customers types and so forth categories? And what are the actions and activities that we're going to do as an organization? And then that would be the third one. The fourth one would be to have the support and guidance system. So all the CRMs, all the reporting, everything should be aligned with so that you actually create value for your customer and appropriate value for your organization that is get value back for your organization so don't just leave it at that level that okay we have now have the process we have the activities but you should follow up just like we spoke about the uh, only 25% of the companies in the study that I referred to earlier had a selling process in place that were actually monitoring that and they were the ones who were the most successful ones So you need to do that. You need to follow up on things. You need to have a support system that helps your organization work in the intended way and in the intended direction. And then um, each one in the organization and who's facing the customer, either directly or indirectly, to wanting to become the go-to person in that his or her specific domain and field of, of competence and role. So I think these are these are all important. These five bullet points are really, really important uh, regardless if you're a startup or if you are a, a global operating corporation. So I think these, these are the same. Yeah, that would probably be it.
0: Thank you, Paul. There's so much information here and hopefully we reduced a bit of the chaos and confusion and complexity in sales, but I have a feeling maybe we increased a bit as, as as well
1: <laughs> maybe we did yeah things aren't always as simple as we kind of want them to be we need to we need to understand first that when we have to look at it enough in detail we get the clarity and then we see through the whole problem then that's how we know it We're, this is how we should do it
0: that was quite a journey what was your favorite part and what did we miss let me know i'm happy to cover more sales related topics in the future for sure we did not talk about pricing at all. Sorry about that. And uh, That was my intention from the very beginning. But since it's a huge topic, uh, I did not want to make this episode any longer than it already is. Thanks for listening. Until next time.